John Shea, in his book, The Hour of the Unexpected, shares this bit of free verse, whimsical, but perfect for right now. He titles it, Sharon's Christmas Prayer. She was five, sure of the facts, and recited them with slow solemnity, convinced every word was revelation. She said, they were so poor, they had only peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to eat. And they went a long way from home without getting lost. The lady rode a donkey, the man walked, and the baby was inside the lady. They had to stay in a stable with an ox and an ass. <laughs> but the three rich men found them because a star lighted the roof. Shepherds came, and you could pet the sheep but not feed them. Then the baby was born. And do you know who he was? Her quarter eyes inflated to silver dollars. The baby was God. And she jumped in the air, whirled around, dove into the sofa, and buried her head under the cushion, which is the only proper response to the good news of the incarnation. The end. Let's pray. The only proper way to respond to the good news of the Incarnation, God? Probably not. But dear Lord, I don't suppose a little whirly jig of joy would hurt us. We who have been made somber by the season of the pandemic, look at us. But here we are. It's Christmas Day. And you surely have a word for us. And if those angels could sing over that stinky backyard stable, then surely we too will find reason to joy over the inestimable gift we call Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. So which is greater, Picasso the artist or the artwork of Picasso? My friend Clifford Goldstein, who was assigned to write a series of studies for our faith community that we would read this fall on, of all books, Deuteronomy, in that series of studies, Cliff, who has this penchant for philosophy, he makes this comment, and I'm going to put his words on the screen for you right now. Now, it is a principle of existence. Whatever conceives of and creates something must be greater than and transcend what it conceived of and created. Picasso is greater than and transcends an artwork by Picasso. And we all nod our heads and say, right on, Goldstein, good job. But he goes on. The God who conceived of and created our cosmos must be greater than the cosmos and transcend it as well. Hmm. And then he proceeds to drive his point home by running some numbers by us. And by the way, these numbers will change when the Webb Space Telescope begins to send pictures back infrared of the far reaches of this universe. But here are the numbers. Uh, Cliff says, our universe, it is now estimated, is home to two trillion galaxies. So here's the number two trillion. That's what it looks like. Two trillion galaxies. Unbelievable. And each galaxy, he reminds us, 
by the way, approximately, contains a hundred billion stars. So we'll put up a hundred billion stars per galaxy. Now, we learn in arithmetic that if you have all these zeros, you just have to multiply the two numbers there and then count all the zeros and add them, correct? So what's the, what's, what's the answer? Well, here it is. 200 with 21 zeros after it. What are, you, what are you going to call that number, huh? 200 with 21 zeros after it? I had to go to Google. I said, Google, what's this number? And Google says, that would be 200 sextillion stars. Now, you got million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion. You can't even fathom it. 200 sextillion stars. So here's the big question for you and me right now. Which one is greater, the 200 sextillion stars or the one creator who shaped them all into existence? Oh, that's a no-brainer. Of course it is. There's a beautiful little Christmas carol. We, we noted one of them last Sabbath, but this is the last one. This is an ancient hymn. We'll call it a Christmas carol tucked away. It's so short that we blow right past it and we miss it, I, I fear, to our great loss. So I'm going to invite you to take that carol and put it on your lap right now. you got your Bible with you. I saw it. You have it. Please turn to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a letter scribbled by the Apostle Paul who has been our hero that we tracked all this fall. And he's writing to a young protege pastor, a friend of his named Timothy. All right? So 1 Timothy chapter 3. Have you found chapter 3 in your Bible? 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's so short, you're going to blow right by it. So we'll, we'll, we'll just slow it down. This is a one line, a one verse retelling of the Christmas story. Let's get the, uh, let's get the preamble. 1 Timothy 3.16, beyond all question, okay, beyond all question, the mystery, now look, hit the pause button right there, and I inserted this word because this is the Greek word, mysterion. Well, you can tell mysterion is the basis for mystery. So it's a tra- mystery is just a transliteration of this Greek word. Beyond all question, the mystery, the mysterion, from which true, true godliness springs is great. And the Greek word for great is mega. So what do we have? We have a mega musterion going on, and we haven't even gotten to it yet, because now Paul says, I want to teach you a sixth stanza hymn that is so short, we can say it in one breath. Here we go. Six lines. Count them. Line number one, stanza number one, he appeared in the flesh. Ancient hymn sung by the first century Christians. Stanza number one, he appeared in the flesh. Stanza number two, was vindicated by the Spirit. Stanza number three, was seen by angels. Stanza number four, was preached among the nations. Stanza stanza number five, was believed on in the world. And stanza number six, was taken up to glory. Six terse lines, and we know exactly whom they describe. Our beloved Lord Jesus, the hero of every hymn we sing. No different in the beginning. And those, those six lines are summarized in those two Greek words, mega musterion, a mega mystery. We, we understand that. What's a mega mystery? Well, the mega mystery is he appeared in the flesh. We just read it. So identifying this mystery is not the problem. Trying to prove it, trying to grasp the mystery, that's a whole other ball game. 
I mean, what is this capital I incarnation? He appeared in the flesh. The enfleshment. That's what the incarnation means. The enfleshment of God. Now, when the apostle, the beloved apostle John comes along, the Christmas story has already been written up. Matthew wrote it. Luke wrote it. But they're the only two. Mark doesn't say a word about Christmas. John will include just one majestic line, and Paul has given us three. Do you know why they're so short on the nativity? I'll tell you why. Because it's the ending to the story that everybody in the first century was talking about. And that's why the cross looms high above the manger. You can't separate them. So how did, how, did, how did John write it, that majestic line? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul wrote that line first, and so he wrote it less, less words. Paul's line, he appeared in the flesh. Wow. What's up? That's why. We already know this, but may I remind you, that's why Christmas, which has nothing to do with the day, has everything to do with the way God appeared in the flesh. That's the story. John Weborg. See John Weborg. In his, in, in the covenant, uh, in the covenant companion, injects some earthy, earthy humanness to the incarnation with these words. See, John Weborg. Here we go. There is. We're we're, we're watching now. We're watching the, the the couple heading to Bethlehem. There is God in the flesh, thriving in a placenta, protected by a water bag. Bouncing on a donkey ride to Bethlehem where his folks had to meet with the local IRS. No different than any other baby at the time. God asked no human favors and got none. When inns are full, they are full. Sleep where one can. God deep in the flesh. That's, a, that's Martin Luther's line. God, oh, I love that line. God deep in the flesh became God deep in the straw. Mary, the mother of the Creator, sustained the one who, sus- who sustained all the living. Yep, 200 sextillion stars from his hand and mouth. My, how can it be? How do you, how do you describe this? Just two words. Provocative words in the Greek, provocative words in the English. Mega mysterion, great mystery. What else can you call it? A great mystery. Mercy. As Madeline Lengel, was it last week? She, she described the moment, and I, I like the way she put it. She said, this God who, these are her words, went with all his love into the womb of a young girl. As Webborg noted it, thriving in a placenta, protected by a water bag. Tell me the story. Mega Mysterio. We don't know. We can't. The 20th century great apologist for Christianity, and you know of whom I speak, C.S. Lewis, in the book God in the Dock describes an imaginary conversation with an atheist friend of his, Lewis, who himself had been an agnostic, an unbeliever, but came to believe in Christ. He describes it this way, and I'm going to just read his description 
Miracles, said my friend? Oh, come. Science has knocked the bottom out of all of that. We know that nature is governed by fixed laws. For instance, take a story like the virgin birth. We know now that such a thing couldn't happen. We know there must be a male spermatozoa. Modern science has shown that there's no such thing as a virgin birth. So there. Really, said I, which of the sciences? Oh, well, that's a, that's a matter of detail, said my friend. I can't give you chapter and verse from memory. Ah, but don't you see, said I, that science never could show anything of the sort. Why not, he retorted, because science studies nature. And the question is whether anything besides nature exists, anything outside. How could you find that out by studying simply nature? Well, that's pretty good. He's right. Science is unable to explain what it cannot examine. But does that inadequacy consequently limit the universe of reality to only what science can examine? No. So Lewis asks his imaginary friend, this is good. He he asked him, listen, if the laws of arithmetic can prove that putting a quarter in a drawer today and putting another quarter in the same drawer tomorrow... We'll guarantee that in two days, would your laws of arithmetic guarantee that in two days I'll find two quarters in that drawer? The friend says, yes, but of course, if someone walks off with one of the quarters, it it wouldn't work. Ah, now I want you to read Lewis. I'll put him on the screen here. Ah, the laws of arithmetic can tell you what you'll find with absolute certainty provided that there's no interference. Now, aren't the laws of nature in the same boat? Don't they all tell you what will happen provided there's no interference? If there was anything outside nature and if it interfered, then events which the scientists expected wouldn't follow. That would be what we call a miracle. It would be what Scripture calls a mega mystery. How could we ever possibly, I'm talking about you and me, grasp with our puny minds this mega ministry? As Paul describes it beyond all question, the mystery, beyond question, without argument, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh. Stepping outside of capital N nature into the very body and mind and soul of humanity. That's the miracle. That's the mystery of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. That's it. But in the end, come on, tell me if this isn't true. In the end, the great mystery of the season of Christmas that it compels us to ponder isn't so much that God could do it, It is that God would do it. And why would He, knowing you and me? A century ago, these words were written, trying to articulate feebly this mystery. The work of redemption is called a mystery, and it is indeed the mystery by which everlasting righteousness is brought to all. That's everlasting salvation is brought to all who believe. 
The human race in consequence of sin was at enmity, at war with God. Now, here comes the striking sentence. Christ, at an infinite cost, by a painful process, mysterious to angels as well as to men and women, you and me, assumes humanity, hiding his divinity, laying aside his glory. He was born a babe in Bethlehem. Explain that to me, will you please? Let's just, let's just take a look at this one sentence. Christ at an infinite cost. There's no way we can wrap our minds around that. Christ at an infinite co- cost by a painful process. Painful process? What are you talking about? The angels don't know. I don't know. Do you? By a painful process, mysteriously to, mysterious to angels as well as to men, women, and children, he assumes humanity. What a provocative line. You know why? Because how easily we crassly reduce the price of the incarnation to Jesus having to give up celestial breakfasts in bed and 24-hour angelic maidservant. Ah, oh, I'm not going to have this anymore. Wrong. What is this painful process? What is this infinite price? How can we ever know the depths? Philip Yancey, the American writer, he wonders the same. It took courage, I believe, for God to lay aside power and glory and to take a place among human beings who would greet him with haughtiness and skepticism. It took courage to risk descent to a planet known for its clumsy violence among a race known for rejecting its prophets. What more foolhardy thing could God have done? G.K. Chesterton, the great English journalist and writer, alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. It took courage. Painful process. We don't know. Desire of Ages peels one more layer aside. He not only became an exile from the heavenly courts, but for us took the risk of failure and eternal loss. And we sit around the tree and wonder, are there any more presents, please? And that was sure a great dinner. Can we get seconds? And Christmas has become for us a day of celebrating ourselves. Oh, we love each other and we give these gifts ostensibly out of that love. Look at this mega mystery. We have no clue. We just know what happened. And so we worship. Like little Sharon, we dive into that sofa, put our head under the cushion, and we shout for joy. But we don't know why, just that he came. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh. In the end, I repeat, could it be that the mystery is not so much how could he, but rather why would he? To answer that question, I have one of my favorite heartwarming stories that Brendan Manning tells. 
is this one. It's a story about a little seven-year-old boy named Richard Ballinger in Anderson, South Carolina. And it goes like this. It's the day before Christmas. Richie's mom is busy with packaging, wrapping, and so she asks her young, young son if he would please shine her shoes. And soon, with a proud smile only a seven-year-old can muster, he returns with shiny shoes to his mother. Job well done. And she is so impressed, she reaches down and grabs a quarter and gives it to him. Thank you. On Christmas morning, as she, as she put on her shoes, she felt a strange lump in one shoe. You were doing the same today, Christmas morning. She turned the shoe upside down, and out it came, a quarter wrapped in paper. And on the paper, in a child's scrawl, were the words, I'd done it for love. You can have your quarterback. I'd done it for love. That's it. That has to be it. This mega mystery. How else shall we explain it? I'd done it for love. We rip the wrapping off of the very first Christmas gift in history and when the, in that little backyard stable and when the wrapping is wrinkled but exposed there in God's handwriting. I done it for love. Now look, his grammar would be better, but he could not be clearer. I done it for love. Wow. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The mystery, the mega mystery of divine love birthed in a box of feed, executed on a cross of wood, Ascended on a cloud of glory, the great mystery of God with us, this God who says He's coming soon. And that's the truth about Christmas. I'd done it for love.